guys, welcome to another episode of Food Flow, the podcast dedicated to the in-depth exploration of the beautiful world of food. My name is Ivor Margerison from thefoodflow.com, and I am here today with an exotic and specialty food supplier who is celebrated in the culinary world for his ability to provide high-end chefs with some of the most obscure food products on the planet. The owner of artisanalfoods.com, Brett Odalangi. Brett, great to have you on the show. Ivor, thanks for having me. So today we're going to explore the topic of lionfish, an invasive species which are basically wreaking havoc on marine ecosystems and Brett's project to combat the issue. But before we get into that, Brett, why don't you tell us a little bit about your food story? And I think a particularly interesting spot to start might be how you earn the nickname the Truffle Kid. Sure. Well, I've been doing this um, most of my life. I started the company when I was 13 in 1998 and uh, started with truffles. I only sold truffles for the first six years till I was 19, and then I slowly started to add products after that. Now we have probably about 700 different ingredients that we offer, but uh, it did all start with truffles, and uh, I would basically walk the strip going door to door and got the reputation for being the truffle kid. So (laughs) although I've gotten a little bit older, so I don't know that that title quite fits anymore. (laughs) But at the time, so you... How old were you when the truffle had first started? Most of the chefs on the strip have known me since I was 19 when I moved out here for UNLV in 2004. So you've moved on from the truffles. It's obviously, like you said, a huge range of exotic goods. And they're not just going to chefs. I mean, you're connecting these with just average people and anyone, right? Yeah, so we started primarily serving restaurants here on the strip. But uh, all of our products are available to home gourmets and and even high-end restaurants across the country. We have both a retail and a wholesale website. And um, so anything that we're supplying for the the restaurants here in Vegas, we can make available at home as well. And And just to paint the picture a little clearer for people who might not be familiar with exotic foods, can you give us some examples of some of the more bizarre requests? We've been asked to get pork bladders and cordyceps and, uh, gosh, um, so many, so many odd ingredients. But those are generally things that we'll just stock uh, or get in one time for a restaurant. And um, it has to be pretty special for it to make it into the collection permanently. The pig bladders didn't make the cut? Turns out pig bladders, there's no way to legally have them here in the United States. Yeah, they're all the pig bladders in the U.S. go to dog food. The slaughterhouses are actually not allowed to save them. And uh, that that's a little bit annoying for a lot of French chefs because pork bladders are used often to, you'll take something like a chicken or a piece of poultry and put it inside of the bladder and tie it off at each end and then roast that in the oven. And it becomes like a balloon holding in all of the moisture. And uh, so it's a really amazing presentation and a great way to cook. Unfortunately, there's no way for us really to do it legally here in the United States. Uh, We were able to get some in from France, but it turned out that that was not really an appropriate thing to be doing. (laughs) So the dog food industry is stifling the creative culinary uh, habits of the French cooks in America, huh? A little bit. Uh, We find a lot of the awful and the things that are considered not usable are ground up and used for pet food. But there's a lot of human uses for those for those products, and it's a shame that we can't use those. For example, all of the horse meat in the United States now, it goes to pet food. And uh, that's also a shame because horse meat is a great delicacy in many countries, and 
In fact, the original Apoab steak, you know, we always see these pepper-crusted steaks, and that was originally a, a dish meant for horse meat and um, not beef. Oh my. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> and it went, so it's been this adventure into the world of obscure sort of foods that eventually led you to today's topic of lionfish, is that right? Yeah, it, I'm in a fascinating business. I'm always getting to jump from one interesting food to the next and researching them as far as I can take it. With Lionfish, that's a project I started on about five or six years ago, and the missing link had always been access to the fish. I, I wanted to sell the fish. I had some restaurants that were willing to give it a try, but the missing link was the fishermen and, and availability. A big part of what I try to do with my company is simply make more sustainable ingredient options available. I find that the, the best way we can have a positive impact on the food system is by making uh, better choices accessible. And so with lionfish, that involved getting very involved, or that involved creating the food chain, really going. So I've gone down to Mexico and worked with spear fishermen. The, the first big break, though, came from watching the show Shark Tank, which was a great lead because a man came on Shark Tank. Uh, he's become a good friend now. His name's David Johnson, and uh, we recently actually traveled to Mexico and Cuba together on a little lionfish expedition. A lot of fun, and uh, those types of tournaments are very good for building awareness. They don't really, it's just a drop in the bucket as far as solving the invasive problem because over a two-day period, we probably caught just shy of a thousand fish, but the reality is that a thousand lionfish in the Caribbean—that's that—that is just a drop in the bucket. There's so many. And just um, and just to expand on that for the people who maybe aren't as familiar with the issue of lionfish. I mean, that's the scale we're talking about. It's I mean, it's different areas all over the world that are dealing with it, and it's on a huge scale. Well, the invasive problem is primarily on the east coast of the United States. There is a little bit of a problem with them in Africa now as well, unfortunately, oh, okay. where they're not native. So they're, they're native to Southeast Asia, to the Philippines. And in their native range, uh, lionfish will grow to about a pound and a half. But overall, their populations are kept in check because the lionfish, they produce, a, their eggs are, are bitter relative to other fish eggs. But in their native habitat, there are different predators that have developed a liking for those bitter eggs. And so by, by the eggs uh, being consumed, that's always kept the population in check in their native range. Unfortunately, they've been released by hobby aquariumists, and hurric a hurricane might come through and wipe out a few homes or an aquarium. Uh, a lot of people suspect that the lionfish problem was started uh, in 1992 by Hurricane Andrew wiping out an aquarium in Florida. I think that more likely the problem was created by cumulative effect of, yes, the hurricane, but also hobby aquariumists releasing their pets when they're tired of them into the ocean. And with no natural predators and being protected by their venomous spines, they find one another and they breed. And um, so some scientists actually think for their size, they're the second most populous fish from North Carolina down to Brazil. Um, oh, wow. And they eat up to 80% of the other species that live on the reef. One reason that we can only get them by spearfishing is because they hide all day in the reefs. And uh, so they don't respond to hooks. You can't get them with a net. 
the only way to get them is by spearfishing or as bycatch in lobster lobster traps. They often will go into the lobster traps because they're almost like an artificial reef. They're going in there really for the shelter, not not for bait or anything like oh. that. And um, so the the big populations are from about 150 to 900 feet deep. And the issue that presents is that when you're spearfishing, most experienced divers can only free dive about 40 feet down. And um, so that means that the big populations are far out of reach for our uh, spearfishing teams. As a result, the last few years we've been really focusing on trying to create a trap. So right now, for example, the cheapest that we've ever been able to wholesale lionfish fillets to restaurants, no matter how much they buy, is somewhere about $18 to $19 a pound. Uh, and that we've really looked at every penny. It's not as though anybody is price gouging and making a lot of profit. Uh, we're just covering our expenses, and, and that's the price that it has to be. So we we really need to reduce that so that the wholesale price would be closer to $8 a pound or less if we wanted to catch on with restaurants and in the, in the greater market. Well, and so in creating that, I mean, so you're talking about with the traps, that's sort of the supply. And now you're talking about also creating a demand. So it's really a two-front fight because right now there isn't really a uh, culinary demand for the fish anyway. And But is it just because they're too expensive? It's primarily price right now that's holding back this trend. Um, I find that most food trends, they coincide with basically accessibility. So as soon as a new amazing ingredient is available here in the States, then chefs can start using it, slowly gets a little bit of media attention, and then and then it picks up steam. With lionfish, there is actually the desire among a lot of chefs to use it, especially in the infected areas like from North Carolina down to Florida. Uh, and even a lot of restaurants in the Caribbean have started to use lionfish. So th- there is demand but that demand is limited to the infected range because as soon as you start going inland, so here like in Las Vegas, it's not really an environmental issue to people in Las Vegas. And so they're maybe not as keen as Floridians on eating lionfish. But if we could reduce the price, it has, it's a great fish. And so what's the flavor like for lionfish? So that's the great news. Lionfish is very versatile and widely appealing. It's not a strong uh, fish. It's quite mild. There's a firm texture. It's not oily. And it's very versatile, so it's great for frying and ceviche. I like to compare it. It's very similar to orange roughy. And for those of you who have cooked with orange roughy, now orange roughy, interestingly, is a fish which we really need to avoid eating a lot of people don't realize that the smallest orange roughy you can take a fillet from is 50 years old. And many of the fish that, that we see fillets in, in the grocery store can be up to 150 years old. That's because these fish live at really great depths in cold water where they grow very slowly. And uh, wow. so it's a lionfish is a wonderful alternative where it's nearly indistinguishable from orange roughy. It can be used in all the same recipes. And yet one is very sustainable, while well, Andruffy itself is uh, really depleting the environment. Some of the chefs that I've sampled it to said that they made it into fried fish and chips as well as fish tacos, and that it's 
they were saying it was the best frying fish they've ever had. And I agree with that. It really does. It fries beautifully. It works really well as ceviche in our cafe. Uh, we serve it as, as ceviche in, in, in our cafe, along with tempura wasabi leaf chips. It's a Ooh. fun dish. Yeah, it's a great dish. The, the cafe, for me, is really a way to introduce ingredients that I'm excited about, but maybe we, we need to spread some inspiration so that chefs and home gourmets know how to use use these new ingredients. And um, so lionfish ceviche with tempura wasabi leaves is a, t- is a dish that really sums up everything I'm trying to do. Wasabi leaves, are, they're another ingredient that no one's really ever seen before. And uh, we've been trying to make them catch on. I think they're, they're fantastic. Is that and is that the actual leaf from the wasabi? It's a it's a root, right? Correct. Yeah. So it's a, a rhizome um, that lives on on top of uh, gravel in flowing water usually, and uh, so then it puts up these leaves. And we normally don't get to see the leaves unless you're near a farm, but uh, the leaves are have this wonderful spicy flavor, just like a radish or like wasabi, and uh, make a great chip when they're fried. And for those of you that maybe are a little more curious about uh, what wasabi is all about, Brett actually went over to, was it in Japan that you went to a farm? Yes, I had the good fortune to work on a family farm in the mountains of Shizuoka, Japan, which is a prefecture pretty much central in Japan. And the reason I chose that prefecture is that it's likely the first place that wasabi was taken from the wild and cultivated. Oh. Um, <laughs> And so I, the family that I was working with, they've been producing wasabi on their small farm for 11 generations. And if you do the math on that, it actually works out so that their ancestors were likely the, some of the first people to take wasabi from the wild and then start planting it on their farm. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and this is and, and this is we're talking about real wasabi, not the not the horseradish pseudo stuff that we're getting served, right? <laughs> Right. So <laughs> virtually all of the wasabi that you're given at sushi restaurants, if they're giving it to you for free, it's it's not real wasabi. Real wasabi, the restaurants would generally charge you about 8 to $10 for, for the add-on, and they would probably come to the table and grate it for you fresh. It's a green root, and it does taste very, very similar to horseradish. And the reason that most restaurants use horseradish instead of wasabi is because there's about a 100-time difference in price. Wow. Horseradish you can buy for about a dollar a pound. You can dye it green and it looks right. Whereas fresh wasabi is at least a hundred dollars a pound. Interestingly, the family that I worked with, this was this was back in 2011, and then later on the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi came out, and uh, it turns out that the um, the family that I had been working with has been supplying Chef Jiro for about 30 years. So it's possible they really do produce the best wasabi in Japan. And uh, we will import that sometimes from them, but there are also farms here in North America, so we like to buy it from them as well. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like, I mean, like you said, the 100 times more expensive. This is kind of the constant struggle, just like with the lionfish for you, is that the top-tier uh, quality and foods, they end up being too expensive to have a supply sort of i mean that must be kind of a constant issue for you well that, that's why i always go back to our, the, my goal for artisanal foods is to make make these 
better ingredients accessible. And for me, accessibility is not just physically being able to cure these items, but also their price. Because if we can't make these things affordable, they'll never catch on a larger market. So that is continually a struggle for us. Sometimes we can do something easy, like sort of uh, reducing the the package size. So maybe we just can offer the product uh, as we did with Kopi Luwak coffee, which is the most expensive coffee in the world. It's expensive if you have to buy a pound, but if you just want to try one cup at home, you only need about 10 grams. So we we simply made a 10 gram one cup package of that. Oh, okay. Um, and but, you, that's the that's the that's the coffee where that that the monkey eats, right? <laughs> and the then civet cat. Yeah, there's a, a civet cat that lives in the jungles of Sumatra and primarily eats the um, coffee berries, and then they're collected and roasted. And, uh, so, <laughs> but with lionfish, it's hard to reduce the portion size because people want to fill up and and have a meal. So right. with that one, I think the key we really do need to reduce the cost, and uh, so for that reason. I, I've been working on these traps and I've built many prototypes so far in my garage and there's one in our tank at the store actually so that uh, customers can see what I'm working on. Uh, it's just a one-tenth scale but um, it's an interesting trap that was inspired largely by lobster traps but there's some key differences and uh, we're going to be sending that down to Mexico actually in about two weeks for testing. So um, we'll have a fisherman that goes and puts that out at different depths and records how many fish they catch and over what period of time. It's an exciting time for it then. So if these, these traps go out from there, it's the next step is putting them on a larger scale. Right. So we need to prove that it works first. And I was simultaneously working on two different traps, a high-tech and a low-tech version. The high-tech version is really interesting because Basically, it, you, it would use facial recognition software and infrared cameras because there's no light at great depths. So it would literally be taking a photograph of anything that moves by its door. And if that's a lionfish, it opens the door and then the fish can get in. If it's not a lionfish, wow. it stays closed. The, the issue with that trap is that even at scale, the cheapest that I'd be able to produce them is about $150 per trap. And um, that is going to be hard to scale. Uh, also, it creates something that people might want to steal out at, out at sea. And uh, the, the great benefit to a high-tech trap is that it can be reprogrammed for any fish. So that there's a problem... There's a problem with invasive species in that you have to wait until they're a huge problem before they're reasonable. there's a reasonable enough number to go after and hunt them. If we had a smart trap that could be programmed to be selective, we could go and put these traps in different bodies of water and try to remove small populations of invasive species before they get out of hand. So this, this smart trap, I mean, is that is that something that already exists in other forms or not? No, no, uh, that's uh, something that I've been building wow. um, some programmers, and um, so, but I really have put most of my efforts into the low tech trap because ultimately it's the scalable version, and um, I made once I finished it, I made a uh, instruction book how to make one of these on your own using your, your native 
local materials oh. because um, the idea is with the low-tech trap, we need it to be so cheap and easy to make that you can make it from whatever's available to you. And um, the instructions don't use any English. They're almost like an Ikea instruction book so that uh, <laughs> we could pass that around uh, wherever the in infection is and uh, the local population could try to find their own solution. But these trap, the low-tech trap would even using the best materials bought at Home Depot only costs about $25. So that's a trap which we could scale and potentially have 10,000 of them in the Caribbean where they're needed. It's exciting that you really are fighting the supply side of it and that the demand is sort of there. Um, I was talking with a guy last week who was in the edible insect world, and he's having to work on both the farming and deal with people's perceptions of eating insects. But it sounds like you said it's, I mean, lionfish are delicious. So if we can just get them on the supply chain going, it's, you know, we could, uh, humans could do what they do to a lot of species once they get a taste for them and potentially kind of clean them out, right? That's the plan. It'd be great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the, the lionfish, I don't know that we would ever be able to eradicate them from the, invest, the infested area, but if we could develop a an easy way to fish for them, we could certainly make a large impact and, and perhaps curb their their population growth. We also really need to consider limiting their range because what's happening, unfortunately, due to global warming is that they're, they're continually creeping up further north. Unfortunately, they have gotten up as far north as Maine, but their, their populations are still are not devastating at that far north yet. Oh, well, and I guess, like you said, that's the advantage of, of being able to trap on such a small scale is that you could use these traps in areas where the populations are still small and curb it before before they get out of hand. I guess kind of just to, to wrap things up here, you've talked about basically where you're at with it right now, but how is what's the best way for people to, to keep up to date with it and kind of see what you're doing and where the project's going? Well, you can always uh, check in with us if you're in Vegas or on our social media. We do a lot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We make these videos, which uh, I would love for people to, to watch, where I'll invite a chef from the Strip or an entertainer, and uh, we cook with different ingredients. Lionfish has come up a few times. So it, it's an important project to us, and uh, we'll continue to spread the word as we have developments. I'll, I'll certainly put up the results of our test in Mexico when, when they're ready. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. And before before I let you go here, the one thing that's on my mind, maybe everyone's wondering it, what's an average meal for an exotic food supplier look like? Like, what are you eating on the average for lunch, <laughs> for dinner? <laughs> so for me, I, I get, I, I'm very fortunate to have some exciting meals where basically we cook the samples that are sent to us from small food producers and it's a pretty eclectic diet, I suppose. <laughs> Saffron dusted bowls of truffled foie gras for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, stuff like that. <laughs> there, there are some of those lucky experiences where there's some extra caviar or some extra truffles that need e eaten, and I'm, I'm happy to do the job. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> um, all right, Brett. Well, I think that's all we got for today. Uh, thanks for, so much for coming on the show. Of course, thank you so much for having me, and continue spreading the word about lionfish. Yeah, good luck with your project. I'm excited to see where it goes.
Once again, that's Brett Odelangi from Artisanal Foods. If you are in Vegas, you've got to go check out his store. It's open seven days a week, and he has curated a deliciously unique collection of goods from all over the world. Plus, they're now open for lunch Tuesday to Saturday from 11 to 2 in their cafe, like he mentioned. And luckily for you guys not located in Vegas, Brett's got his edible collection available on artisanalfoods.com. A lot of really unique stuff, and they ship throughout the U.S. So you can finally get your hands on some of that real wasabi root that we were talking about for your next sushi party or even get some lionfish fillets once again this is Ivor Marjerison from thefoodflow.com thanks so much for listening i'll see you guys next time